All right. We have a homework assignment due today. Homework three. That was the nice short one with only five questions. Um, if you don't have, you have it now. I'll take it. You know, between now, between lab. If you want to turn it in up here, I'll take it. A number of you have already submitted to the Dropbox on D2L. That's fine. As long as I get them by six o'clock tomorrow, either here today or get them submitted to the Dropbox by then, they're fine. Quiz three is up and should be available through beginning of next month, which is Monday, but October 1st. And that will cover chapters four through eight. Half the questions will be on those chapters. The other half will be on chapter nine, which we're finishing up and should be through the rest of that today. We should be through the rest of that today. So we should have actually covered all of that for you. So if you want to take that this weekend, if you want to wait till Monday, of course you have that option as well. Exam two will be on Wednesday covering chapter three, chapters four through eight, and chapter nine, plus that little bit of chapter two that we didn't cover on the previous exam. So there will be a couple questions on that as well. Homework four I will give you on Monday. So I will get you that on Monday. It's available on D2L if you want to pick it up. If you want to get a copy and work on it this weekend. But that covers the next two. That covers chapter 9 which we're just finishing and chapter 10 as I recall. So that will be up and that is up and available but I'll bring copies in on Monday. And then quiz 4 again will be in a couple in two weeks from today and that's the one that's going to be actually in class here. So questions, questions, questions. No? Alrighty. Picture of the day for today, dust and stars. So very dusty part of the sky here. Number of stars, see a whole ton of stars here. See a whole bunch of very dust, dusty area. Now dust in space is not really what we think of when we think of dust here when you're dusting, dusting your house or cleaning the dust off. It's a lot more diffuse. There's not that many particles that close together. They're spread out. They might be you know, centimeters apart. One here, one there, one there, one there, scattered around, the sky, scattered around the sky. But they actually will show up when you're looking at things that are over many light years. You know, many of the objects in this are, would be light years across, so you have a lot denser area and will actually be dense enough to block out starlight from behind it. So that, that dust, even though there's only particles scattered all over the place, when you get enough of them close together, and enough of them spread out over a big enough area, they can actually completely block out any starlight coming from behind it. The other thing that we see in here is you notice that a lot of these stars have a blue halo. The blue halo is also due to the dust. And that's what we call a reflection nebula. And there's dust around the stars. The light from the stars, blue light from the stars come coming out all directions hits the dust particles. Dust is very, very good at scattering blue light. So it scatters that blue light very, very well and makes it come from all directions. So it sort of illuminates, that with the blue light, illuminates all that dust around the star and it glows in blue in what we call a reflection nebula. So it's just the dust is reflecting some of that starlight that would have otherwise gone out in other directions and is reflecting it to us. The red light pretty much goes straight through the dust. It doesn't get absorbed until the dust gets thicker and thicker, unless you get a very thick amount of dust, then the red light will actually get absorbed too. So you have a reflection nebula, and again, you see one bright one around this one very bright star, but you also see it, you know, haziness around many of these other stars. You can see that little bit of haze around them, which is also due to light from those stars being reflected by the dust. So 
Questions? Questions? Two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Sixteen. Okay, seventeen. All right. Well, we were work. We were talking about the sun then, and the solar activity. So I think I'd finished up here last time, and I talked about the 11-year sunspot cycle, and I told you last time I lied. It's not an 11-year cycle. It's a 22-year cycle. Yes, there's an 11-year sunspot cycle that sunspots come and go, and you'll reach a peak about every 11 years, roughly. It's not exact. You know, I can't say that if the sunspot maximum occurred in 2001 that the next one will definitely occur in 2012. Sometimes they occur a year or two earlier, sometimes they're a year or two later. This maximum that's coming now seems to be running a little bit later. We should have passed it if we just went by 11 years. So they're not precise. It's nothing that's exact where I can say it's going to come back exactly 11 years as I can tell you that the sun, this earth is going to rotate every 23 hours and 56 minutes and be very confident of that. 11 years is a good estimate. It's a good average that's worked for us for over several hundred years now. But it's not an exact measurement. There's no precise exact cycle that is exactly 11 years in that case. And what we notice when we look at the sunspots, and what this is, the graph is a count of the number of sunspots that we're seeing each month over the period of several hundred years. So you'll see that you get a peak here, about every 11 years you got a peak. But those peaks are not the same. You get some where there's a very intense peak where there's a lot more sunspots. You get some peaks where, yeah, there's a peak there, but it's a lot less. And it might be, you know, three or four, three times lower or three times higher, depending on which one you're looking at, than the highest sunspot peak. So there's not an exact number of sunspots. I can't tell you ex until we've passed the sunspot cycle, until we look backwards, you know, this sunspot maximum that's coming up, is it going to be one of these? Is it going to be one of these? Well, come back in a few years and I'll tell you what it was. But I can't tell you what it's going to be. There's no way to predict it in advance. As you can see, there's not really any regular kind of pattern. There's some that are bigger, some that are smaller. There's a couple little dips here and here. But nothing that is any kind of regular pattern. We also do see, again, stretching back right after the time of Galileo, in the late 16 to very early 1700s, was a time, what we call the Maunder Minimum. Typically, the minimum is when you reach your lowest dip of sunspots. So you reach a maximum, then you reach a minimum. Maximum, minimum. The Maunder Minimum is an extended minimum. So not lasting just a couple of years as the typical ones do, but lasting decades where there were not no sunspots, but very few sunspots on the surface of the sun. You still saw them, as you can see. You know, it's not exactly zero down there. Not zero, but there's a few. But nowhere near, you know, you're barely getting up to the level of the minimum of many of the minima right here. You're barely getting up to that level. So a very extended period of time when there was not a lot of sunspot activity. Why? I don't know. We don't understand the sun well enough for me to be able to tell you why the sun is, you know, why the sun was quiet for decades. Will it do it again? You know, it could. We could have a maximum here and go right back down into a minimum. And it could last for decades where you don't see many sunspots. Or you could see an extended maxima. I mean, there's no way to tell. A lot of this, and again, one way to think about it is we're looking at this. This is our entire, the entirety of our knowledge of sunspots. 
We know about what sunspots have been like from today going back to the early 1600s. It's a long time, right? 400, year, 400 years seems like a long time. The sun's four and a half billion years old and it's been doing this for four and a half billion years. So four and a half billion years, 400 years, you know, swish my hands like that, it's nothing. It's only that tiny, little tiniest um, bit of the sun, of the sun's history. So it would be similar, you know, trying to study a, study a person based on a few seconds of their life. Well, that might be typical. Might be not. You might be studying them when you might be studying them when they're sick and they got a 104 degree fever. You don't know. So that's a big problem with it is that we don't know. You know, if we had sunspot records going back for thousands and millions of years, it would help. And you'd still, even if you go back a million years, you're still only looking at one million out of four and a half billion. You know, one four thousand five hundredth. It's not a big. It's not a big chunk. Even going, and that, we're not coming close to a million years. We're only talking a few hundred. So it's only that very tiny piece that we're looking at. So I tell you, there's a lot I can't tell you. I couldn't tell you whether there'll be another Maunder minimum. Do they occur every 500 years or so? So we're due for another one coming up in another century or so? Do they occur every million years? We just happen to catch one right there? Or is it a one-time one -time thing? A lot of things about it I really can't, I can't tell you just because we don't have enough data on it. Okay. So, what we get during the active time of the sun is the sunspots, while they're darker and cooler areas on the surface of the sun, when we look at them in visible light, they're actually more interesting when you look at them in ultraviolet. They're a brighter, they get a brighter area right above them. So they're actually cooler at the surface, but they've heated up up higher. They're really where all the activity is going on on the sun. So when you see a sunspot, it's not a darker, cooler, quiet area. They're actually the most intense active areas on the sun. So we get things like, as you see in the left-hand picture, you've got a giant uh, prominences, prominence, material being flung out of the sun. The earth for scale is smaller than one of these sunspots. So you know, that's massive, massive size-wise compared to the Earth. The other one is another closer, another prominence. Material a little closer up. Again, you see the materials here. Loops of material. They're all looped this way because they're following the sun's magnetic field. All the particles on the sun are charged. They're either positively or negatively charged. The sun is so hot that you don't really have a lot of neutral atoms. You have everything with either the electrons are stripped out, so you have free electrons running around, or you have the positively charged nuclei that have had some of their electrons stripped off of them. Those charged particles follow along the magnetic field lines. So they actually illuminate them. We wouldn't see them otherwise. Magnetic field lines are invisible. Right? There's some passing through us right now for the Earth's magnetic field. You put a compass in it, it'll point to the north. You still don't see them, right? You can, you can make, get the effect to be able to see them, you can put something there to be able to detect where they are, but you really can't see them. On the sun, the same way. You couldn't see them if it weren't for this plasma that follows around those magnetic fields. But the sunspots are therefore magnetic phenomena, so they're related to the solar magnetic field. And everything else that we see here, the prominences, if we look at solar flares, we look at coronal mass ejections, 
all the different materials, all the different things coming from the sun are all related to that magnetic field and that magnetic cycle, that 22 year magnetic cycle where the magnetic field will flip in the middle of that. So as this magnetic field gets all tangled up and twisted, we end up getting all this interesting, these interesting formations that we wouldn't otherwise see. A prominence is Essentially, when you think about it, a prominence is when that magnetic field that is confined to the surface kind of bulges up and pushes itself up above the surface. So if you can imagine this magnetic field would have been following closer along and as it bows out through the surface, it pushes up and it brings some of that material with it. So it pushes some of that material out into space. A prominence is pretty well out into space, out into space above the sun. It doesn't really throw it off into space the way some of the other um, phenomena we'll talk about do. But it pushes it up above the surface of the sun. So it's that magnetic field moving and it kind of makes that grow, makes it stand up above above the sun in what we call a prominence. So it's sort of a sheet of the gas that's there. But it's still confined to the sun. It's still bound to the sun and you'll see material coming up and going down through it. But it's not really escaping yet. Some of them we actually can throw material off and that's the solar flare. So a solar flare is when this kind of prominence thing happens. But where prominence takes a lot of time, you know, it's slowly, you can watch the prominence develop. It slowly pushes material up. It can take it a few days, a week to push that material up. Solar flare is the same, but for whatever reason, instead of the magnetic field popping up slowly, it snaps almost. Snaps out and throws that material. Same amount of material, same amount of energy. But if you're doing it in a few seconds to a few minutes, that energy is going to actually be enough to to throw this material off the surface of the sun, allow it to escape from the sun. Same amount of energy, but when you condense it and do it in a few seconds, it's a lot worse than doing it over the periods of days or weeks. And that's what we call a solar flare. Now that's something that that can affect the Earth. If the Earth happens to be in the direction of that solar flare, you know, the Earth to scale is some little tiny circle down here, you know, smaller than the sunspots. Very tiny. You know, that's coming towards the Earth. It's not going not to vaporize us. It's not, don't get a flare like that. It could spread out too much by the time it gets to us. But it can have an effect on the Earth's um, atmosphere. All those particles coming from the Earth, that will cause much more intense aurora. It can cause, those particles can also disrupt the satellites can you know, fry some electronics in satellites and disrupt communications. So the larger the flare, if it happens to be directed towards the Earth, now if it's directed in the opposite direction, we don't care. Right? Go, out all, go out there, go out there all at once. It's going out towards Jupiter in the other direction or something, we're never going to see it. But the odds are that some of these flares, and they do, come towards the Earth and will affect communications depending on how intense they are. And they will. The aurora is the primary thing that we're able to see to see the, you know, the glowing in the Earth's atmosphere, which again is all these particles just coming around from the sun, striking the Earth's magnetic field, and then ca- hitting the Earth's atmosphere and causing it to glow. Now the most extreme is what we call a coronal mass ejection, which is much, much bigger than a flare, sending a lot more material out, shoving a lot more material out into, into space. So here's an example picture of one this is the corona of the sun around it, where the sun was down here and is completely blocked out. And that is material that comes out from, from the sun. 
Now when those strike the Earth, they distort our magnetic field. So those high energy particles come in and so instead of having our regular magnetic field nice and uniform there as they strike it, they distort it, distort the shape. That allows the particles to reach in at much lower latitudes. Typically again, mentioned we talk about the aurora. We see pictures of them from Alaska, Scandinavia, you know, northern Canada, northern Siberia, you know, very far north areas. When you get a large solar flare, a large coronal mass ejection, you get enough material that distorts this magnetic field that you can, they're visible from you know, the continental US, even the southern part of, the continent of us. You can see them down in you know, the Carolinas, down in Georgia. When you, get intense, when you get an intense enough one, you can distort this magnetic field enough and have enough particles flowing through that not all of them get funneled along. Some of them actually make it through and you get, you get glowing much further down. The most intense coronal mass ejection that we know of that came towards Earth about 150 years ago now. And that actually had aurora visible in Hawaii. So Hawaii's not, not, not on the equator, but it's only 20 or sunny some degrees north of the equator. That's pretty far south. You don't typically see an aurora in Hawaii. So it was that intense that disrupted our magnetic field that much. And it also caused great issues with communications at the time. Now this was late 1850s. We didn't have a lot of, you know, didn't have telephones, didn't have, you know, a lot of other communication. Did have telegraph though. And it was enough intensity of energy that apparently it was able to start fires, you know, electrifying the, the telegraph wires and start, fire, and start fires right with the equipment. So it actually did do quite a bit of damage there. You know, what would something like that do today would be a good question and could be a scary one. You know, it could disrupt our communications today. Be a lot worse probably than disrupting them in 1850 something, you know, when it took days to get across the take weeks or months to get across the country or days just to get from city to city, you know, it took a long time to travel. You know, nowadays you're used to much, you know, you're used to instant communication that if you have somebody who's, you know, lives in Europe, well you can talk to them in real time, right? You know? Doesn't matter, you can get a hold of them. So it would really be something, you know, you're used to your electronic communications, your cell phones, if this were to disrupt communications like that, you know, you no longer have cell phone communications that a lot of people depend on now. You know, you're lost if you don't have your, if you get your cell phone, you're lost, right? So, could be, it could be major damage, could, certainly one should occur again, certainly the Earth will get hit again, but it's one of those things I can't tell you when. Is it going to be next week? Maybe. Could be. There's large sunspots on the sun right now. But is the next one going to be 100 years from now or 500 years from now? Probably just as likely. So it's another thing. I can't, you know, can't, can't tell you. Can't tell you when it's going to be. I can tell you it's probably with pretty good confidence it's going to occur. But can't say it's going to be in your lifetime or, you know, even several generations down when something like this will occur again or how much damage it will do. It's something we're not going to really know for sure until we know exactly how head-on we get hit and everything and all with that. So. Oh, come on. I didn't plug it in between classes. There we go. Do that. All right. Solar wind. We look at this image. Now this is another image of the sun. And we've been switching back and forth between how we're looking at them. We had some visible light images of the sun. We had ultraviolet. I think we had some infrared. This is actually an x-ray image of the sun. So we're actually looking at the corona of the sun. We're not looking deep down at the surface like we were before. We're looking way up above 
that outer atmosphere of the sun. That emits primarily x-rays. Now if you recall the corona was very hot, right? The surface of the sun was about 6,000 degrees. When you got out to the corona it went up to millions of degrees again. Millions of degrees, very high temperature emits a lot of x-rays. So what you're seeing here is what there are are coronal holes or kind of openings in the, in the sun's magnetic field. So many times the magnetic field lines are trapped back down to the sun. They go out and they come right back in. Other ones they go out into interplanetary space. So they just zoom out here. There's the magnetic field lines. These are open. That means particles can stream out through these because they're not blocked by the magnetic field. The magnetic field traps a lot of particles to the sun. So if particles are trying to leave here, they get trapped by the magnetic field lines, so they don't actually get away. When particles are trying to leave here, they head right out, they're not trapped there anymore, and they can head out into interstellar space, or interplanetary space, let's say. That's what we call the solar wind. And what you're seeing in the image there, in x-rays, the brighter areas are more x-rays, more active, more material in the corona. The holes, the darker areas, are where you don't see many x-rays. That's where material is able to escape out. So there's not as much material confined into the corona there. And the material is better able to escape out into space. So with the solar wind, that means the sun is losing material. It's sending particles out into space, not just in flares or coronal mass ejections, which are more sudden, intense events, but just in general, a solar wind, you know, it doesn't sound like this big horrible event, and it's not. It's just slowly, the sun is slowly losing material due to these openings in the magnetic field. So it's constantly losing particles out into space and is pushing those out, pushing those particles out. The corona, again we studied that, looked at that a little bit. The corona looks in different in shape depending on when you're looking at it. When you look at the low points of the sunspot cycle where there's not a lot of sunspots, you get a very round corona, you know, just kind of hugging a little nice smooth atmosphere of the sun. During the most intense times, then you get the corona sort of like this image here. This is a visible light picture where you have a much more intense corona in some directions, much less in others, not as smooth. So the magnetic field has likely gotten more tangled up and distorted things completely differently than it had than it was when it was a nice smooth um, nice smooth magnetic field at earlier times in the cycle. It's also much larger. It extends out much larger into space. Again, a sign of the solar activity. The sun is much more active and you get many more particles extended out at much larger distances from the sun. So the corona changes along with the sunspot along with the sunspot cycle. Okay, down into the heart of the sun now. So we sort of started, we looked a little bit at the interior of the sun. I didn't get into any details. I sort of went through the inner layers, talked about each of those. Um, went through the outer layers, which we just finished up in terms of talking about solar activity. But going back into the core, and what is happening, that's, that's where the energy is being generated. We need a lot of energy in order to support the sun. And I showed you a diagram of that the last time when we ta I talked about that a little bit, where you've got immense amount of gravity trying to push the sun down. You've got all this energy being produced to the center that's pushing them out. And they're exactly balanced. If we didn't have this energy production, then gravity takes over and boom, 
got a nice black hole where the sun was. Because it would immediately collapse down. There'd be no, there, there were no energy source. The energy source that exists is what we call nuclear fusion. Now that's different than the nuclear fission that is used in nuclear reactions on Earth where we split apart atoms. You take uranium or plutonium atoms and split them apart to gain energy. On these, you actually are combining atoms together. You're taking two hydrogen atoms together, smashing them together, and in the, in the long run making helium, we'll go through the details of it in a little bit, and creating energy. And it's because if you smash four hydrogen atoms together, take four hydrogen atoms, that's about the same as one helium atom, pretty close. It has a little bit less, the helium atom has a little bit less mass here. If you take that mass and you add up four hydrogen atoms, there's a little bit less mass in the helium than there is in the hydrogen. So E equals mc squared, it's a little tiny bit of mass that you've lost and converted to energy leads to an immense amount of energy. And when you have many billions of these going on every single second in the sun, many of these reactions, that gives you all the energy you need to support the sun and keep it from collapsing under its own gravity. Now, what fission requires is that you smash two protons. Start off, we've got to smash two protons together. So positive charge and positive charge, when they get close enough together, what do they do? Well, they want to push each other apart, right? They want to shove each other apart. Positive charges don't like each other. So if we do it in, do it in the classroom and I shove positive charges and positive charges, well, they're going to repel each other. They're going to push each other away. You've got to get them moving very quickly. So that's why this only occurs at extremely high temperatures. If you get them going hard enough, if you get them going fast enough, you can overcome that repulsion and you can get them to smash together and stick before they will, before they start repelling. And in fact, if you get them close enough, we talked about the gravitational force, right? We talked, it didn't talk about, but I sort of just mentioned what we call the electromagnetic force, that like charges don't like each other, they repel each other. If you get things close enough together, there's another force called the strong nuclear force, which actually binds the nucleus together. So if you can get those two protons close enough together, there's actually a new force that kicks in and will, will, will bind them together. So they'll actually stick together, even though they're two positive charges, they can stick together if they get close enough. Now we're going to look at the details of the reaction, I think. Yep, there it is. Yuck, right? It's really, a, it's not an instantaneous process. You don't take four hydrogen atoms all at once, fuse them together, make one helium atom, and you're done. It's got to be done in steps. So this is the, ho this is the whole way it occurs. What you start off with is two protons smashed together, bang, and you get what comes out is what we call a deuteron. It's deuterium is actually a form of hydrogen. Hydrogen typically has one proton, but if you've had chemistry, right, a proton or other science chemistry, protons tell you what the atom is, how many protons it has. So any atom with one proton is hydrogen. It can have different numbers of neutrons. Any atom with two, two protons is helium. Any atom with six protons is carbon. So this is another form of hydrogen, but instead of having a, just one proton, it's got one proton and one neutron, so it's what they call heavy hydrogen. It's heavier. Now, one problem you've got is that proton has a positive charge, 
proton has a positive charge. You had two positive charges going in. Got to have two positive charges. You can't lose charge. Can't have two positive charges going in and one going out. Something's wrong. That charge just can't disappear. You know, like mass and energy, it has to be conserved. So while you've converted this to a de deuteron, you've lost one positive charge. You have to send out another particle with a positive charge, which is called a positron. Positron is essentially an electron with a positive charge. It's a piece of antimatter. So you've made a little bit of antimatter. Positively charged electron, the opposite particle electron. Well, in the center of the sun, there's many, many electrons scattered around. Once matter meets antimatter, a positron meets an electron, they annihilate each other. Turn themselves completely into energy and the particles are gone. So you have two particles collide, boom, they're gone, and you send out gamma rays. There's some of the energy of the sun. You've converted a little bit of mass from this original system here into energy in the form of gamma rays. Now that happens a couple times. So you've got one at the bottom, one at the top in order to get this cycle to go properly. Then you take that deuterium, you smash a proton against it. Okay, now you've got, you're going to have three, two positive, two positive charges, one neutral charge. So you now have an isotope of helium because you have two positive charges, two protons makes a helium atom. Not the typical helium that we're used to, we call helium-3. The typical helium has two protons and two neutrons in the nucleus. This helium has two protons and only one neutron. But it's the next step in the chain. You can see we're slowly building up. We're going from one, one item in the nucleus, to two, to three. And the final step is smashing two of these helium nuclei together, the helium-3s, to make the typical stable form of helium that we're used to at the center of the sun. Leave that there, that's there, that's stable, it's going to sit there now for billions of years. It's not going to do anything else. And six particles in, four, five, six particles out. So two more protons go flying off at very high speeds to continue the reaction. So you get a chain reaction there, it keeps going. These, these protons will then come around and then cause continued reactions. And this goes on within the sun billions upon billions of times every second. So you're constantly converting hydrogen into helium at the center of the sun. Now it doesn't affect what we see on the sun. We're not going to see if we look at the sun now and we could go back and look at the sun four billion years ago. There's exactly as much helium on the surface as there was four billion years ago. This doesn't get out. This is all trapped deep down in that core. What will happen and will come up in two chapters, chapter 11, is eventually you build up so much helium in the core and not enough hydrogen that you don't have enough hydrogen to sustain this reaction. So you don't have the reaction anymore. You don't have energy being produced. Gravity takes over. But we'll get back to more of that in chapter 11. What's going to happen? So it's going to start to collapse. Things are going to collapse. Things are going to expand. And that's when all the interesting stuff in terms of a star happens. Now, one of the pieces, oops, wait a second, I should have done that first, shouldn't I? One of the other things that's emitted there, and I should have mentioned that, I talked about everything but it, is that there's one other particle that comes out. I talked about the positrons, we talked about deuterium, I talked about helium-3. There's one more particle that comes straight out, which is called a neutrino. 
Now it has to come out, it balances everything, it has no charge. In fact, it's Italian for little, little neutral one. So neutrino, little tiny particles, very little mass, and no charge. But they just travel straight out there. One more that has to be completed to balance this nuclear reaction, to balance all of the, all the momentum and everything that's going into it. You've got to balance everything coming out. You need that one more particle. They do come out. They're very interesting particles. They don't like to interact with anything. So they come right out through the sun immediately. Most of this energy, these gamma rays, we don't see these, right? The sun doesn't emit gamma rays. Sun emits visible light. Well, we've got to convert these gamma rays into visible light. That takes time. Those slowly, those gamma rays slowly get absorbed and re-emitted and absorbed and re-emitted and constantly changed in wavelength till one gamma ray might become a hundred x-rays and each of those hundred x-rays might become a hundred ultraviolet photons and each of those will become a hundred visible and they slowly over thousands and tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of years work their way out from the center of the sun. So the light we're seeing coming from the sun right now left the surface of the sun eight and a half minutes ago, right? Left the center of the sun maybe a hundred thousand years ago. Takes it that long for it to work its way out through the sun. The neutrinos don't do that. These neutrinos zoom right out. So the neutrinos that we can detect here on Earth right now left the sun eight and a half minutes ago. They travel, they travel at almost the speed of light. So they come almost directly to the Earth. So that leads into this a little bit. They escape. They interact with almost nothing. So they travel through all that material. Remember how dense the center of the sun was? They don't, they don't interact with any. They hardly interact with anything. So they just stream right out of the sun. They're streaming through us right now. So we're getting bombarded by neutrinos from the sun. Most of them never interact with us. So you could have billions of them going through your fingernail every second. You're never going to notice it. No, they're just streaming right through you and heading out through the universe. But if we could detect them, that would give us a direct, a direct understanding of what's going on in the core of the sun right now. Question, yeah? That most of them never interact. What happens if they do? That's the next part. Coming up. That, that's the good thing is when we actually do. When we actually do can detect them. But they do, not, they do not. They pretty much interact with nothing. Again, you're streaming through you right now. But we could see what's happening in the core. If we could detect them, we could see what's happening in the core of the sun right now. We don't know. right? We know that the sun was producing energy hundreds of thousands of years ago because that's how long it would take it to get out. That's what we're seeing right now. Now, the thing is, if they're traveling through the entirety of the sun, from the center of the sun outwards, and not interacting with much, how likely are they to interact with anything here on Earth? Not very. They're going to travel right through the Earth, right through us, pretty much. The only way you can detect them is you have to have giant containers of material. So specific materials that they will interact with occasionally. You know, one in a billion and a billion and a billion might interact. So they, do, they don't never interact, but it's very rare for them to. So, and you're observing just the occasional interactions. You're not going to detect them. You know, it's not like looking at something bright coming from the sky, bright star where you can count, oh, look at all the photons coming, I can detect. You're getting one here and one here. You're only getting a very, very small fraction of them that will actually interact with anything.
So what they've done is to set up, what they did was to set up large detectors which were essentially vats of uh, cleaning fluid with a chlorine in it. Chlorine was something that they will interact with on occasion. And again, it's not every other one or every fifth one or every thousandth one or even every billionth one. You know, it's that very rare events that they will actually interact and cause a spark of light when they interact. So you actually get a little bit of energy. It doesn't destroy anything. They don't do anything. You know, not, when they do interact, it's not like if one interacts with you, boom, you're gone. You know, hope one doesn't choose you to interact with today or you just disintegrate. You know? So it doesn't count, count for spontaneous combustion or anything like that. You know? But they will produce a little bit of energy when they do interact on those rare occasions. And what we see, in fact, these are some of the observatories here. There's people in that one to give you kind of a sense of scale. You can see a few people standing here to get an idea of how big these are, to get a big mass of this cleaning fluid. Again, a very chlorine-rich fluid. And then the detectors to be able to detect, okay, as I recall, this is the, they're almost floating in the fluid here, and then all of the detectors to detect that little bit of light that comes, that comes out. And we're able to observe them. So you're able to actually observe some neutrinos coming from the sun. Again, you're not going to observe a quarter of them. You're not going to observe a billionth of them. You're going to observe a tiny fraction. But we know by probability how likely they are to interact. So we could say, you know, it's one in a billion, billion, billion. And we know how many. We know our models of the sun. So we can predict how many we're supposed to be able to detect. Wait a second. Where am I? Let me go back a little and I'll save you. Wait a second. There we go. So we can predict that. We can predict how many we're going to detect. I can make a prediction as to how many we're going to detect. When these experiments were first done, they predicted you know, so many were going to occur. And the experiments found that they didn't find quite as many. They found about a third of what they were supposed to find. Not, not horrible, but still it's way off. If you're predicting you're going to detect Okay, I'm going to detect you know, 1,000 each year, and I'm only detecting 333 or so, about a third of them. That's a pretty big discrepancy. You know, there's something wrong with, well, it could be a couple things that are wrong. Could your detector, could it be something wrong with your detector? You know, maybe you don't, maybe your detector isn't detecting, isn't as sensitive as you think, or isn't going to be able to detect things exactly the way you think it is. That's certainly one possibility. Something that you could check and that they were able to not find any problems with. Did you not understand, you know, are neutrinos different than what we think? You know, we thought we understood neutrinos, but it's, they're not those kind of particles. I can't get a whole bunch of them here and sit there and study them. They stream through everything. They're very hard to detect. So maybe we didn't fully understand a neutrino. Or maybe we didn't understand the sun. Maybe the sun's energy production isn't what I just showed you a few slides ago. So any of those could have been problems as to explain why we were not detecting as many neutrinos from the sun as we thought, as we, thought we should. And the eventually, eventual resolution to it was that we found out that it was the neutrino we didn't understand. Neutrinos come in three flavors. This is the particle physicist uh, nomenclature. So there's different flavors of neutrino. No, they don't have any different taste to them, but they call them different flavors, different types of neutrinos. And what it turns out is the sun produces one kind of neutrino in that reaction. That's what this was set up to detect. This was set up to detect a certain type of neutrino that was produced by the sun. But because that neutrino had a little bit of mass, it turns out that it can change its flavor. 
So there's three different types. It could change from one to the other to the other and oscillate between them once it was produced and once it left the sun. So in that eight and a half minutes, that means that even though they all started out as the, one ty- the type of neutrino we were trying to detect, by the time they got to Earth, now they were uniformly split between three different types of neutrinos. So in fact, detecting one-third of what we originally predicted was correct. That's how many we should have been detecting, but we didn't understand. The particle physicists at the time did not yet understand the neutrino well enough, that neutrinos could actually change their form, change their type from one type of neutrino to another, and this mechanism would not detect the other two types. So the other two types went straight through this. You'd have to get another type of detector that might be able to detect those kinds. So it sort of told us that, guess what? The particle, the particle physicists didn't understand the neutrinos at the time. We've helped to understand that better. But it also told us that our model of the sun was probably right. Everything I've showed you about how the sun is producing its energy, again, I can't get down there. I can't, we can't take a field trip to the center of the sun and see the sun, see the fusion going on. You know, be nice, but we'd all be melted. <laughs> and go see what's really going on there. So we have to use indirect methods. We have to observe what we can see coming directly, coming out of the sun. All right, so finishing up chapter nine. The sun is held together by gravity, so it's gravity that's pulling it together. Gravity wants to pull it down to a point. Gravity really wants to make it a black hole, pull it down to just a single point. We've got nuclear fusion that's pushing it out and balancing it. And that's what we call it's an equilibrium. It's balanced. That force of gravity pulling it down is exactly balanced by the force of the nuclear energy pushing it out. The layers of the sun are the outer layers. We have the photosphere that we see. That's the sphere of light where we see it. We have above that the chromosphere. A little bit starts out a little bit cooler and then starts to heat up again. And then the corona, very hot, millions of degrees as you get further out, the outermost layers of the sun. To understand the interior of the sun, again, no field trip to the center of the sun to see what's going on there. What we see are, the math, we use mathematical models. So we can make a model, we can use those stellar structure equations that I flashed up on the screen very briefly and said, you know, I can predict. I can use these models. These explain exactly physically what must be going on in the sun. If we have a few baseline numbers to start with, we can then say, okay, here's what the things are like at the center of the sun, and here's what we should be getting at the outside. And you can sort of work with them to make a model. And that's sort of what we confirmed with that neutrino experiment. Helioseismology was the oscillations of the sun. We looked at the oscillations to, again, get us a picture, work backwards by how the sun is oscillating to give us a picture of what's going on deep inside the sun. Sunspots are magnetic fields associated with the magnetic fields. They're darker against the surface of the sun, not because they're cold, but because they're slightly cooler than the rest of the sun. So they're not cold. They're still 4,000 to 5,000 degrees. They're just cooler than the rest of the sun. Nuclear energy we went through today. Convert hydrogen into helium and releases energy. The solar neutrinos, again, we talked about those. They come directly from the solar core. They didn't tell us a lot about the sun. You know, talk about the scientific method. You know, you want, sometimes you want, those, you want to find things that don't confirm you because you've learned something new. They really confirmed what we understood about the sun. They didn't you know, change our understanding of the sun, 
But they did tell us a lot about the neutrinos, that we did not understand neutrinos and how they can change between different types as they travel between the sun and us. So, sun, sun? Questions, questions? No? All right, well, I've got a few minutes. I'm going to go ahead and start chapter 10. Chapter 9 is where the exam ends. I'm going to start chapter 10, and that's what we'll pick up on Monday. But since we lose a class period to the exam, I don't want to fall too far behind. So we'll do, I'll get the, the introduction done here on the stars. So chapter 10 is actually on measuring the stars. So we're going to be looking at all the numbers, all the different things that we can determine about the stars. And again, like as we were within the solar, with, with the sun, there's not a lot of experiments that we can do. But just looking at the light from the stars, we can learn a whole lot about them. I can look at this image here and tell you that you know, this star up here is a heck of a lot hotter than this star down here. I can tell that just by looking at the, temp at the colors. A blue star is much hotter than a red star just based on its color. So we can learn something about the temperatures. Can I tell you which one is further away? No. Not just from looking at this image, but there are measurements I can make to determine whether this star is closer or this star is closer. There are measurements we can make to find out the distances of the stars. There are measurements we can make to find out what the stars are made up of. We looked at that when we looked at spectroscopy. What does the spectrum look like? And I can be able to determine what, you know, what, are, the stars made, what are the stars made up of. We can determine if we use the Doppler effect. If I measure that spectrum and see where the lines have shifted, I can tell how they're moving. I can tell you if that star is moving away from us or towards us. So there's a lot that I can determine. Um, if they're orbiting, I can determine a mass of the star. So I can determine masses, I can determine compositions, I can determine velocities, I can determine temperatures. There's a lot of different things that we can determine just by studying that starlight that comes from these stars. So what we're going to look at First of all, some of the nearby stars. We're going to talk about luminosities and apparent brightnesses or magnitudes, which is how we go about measuring the brightnesses of stars. How do we determine temperatures of stars, sizes of stars? You know, we can't see how big a star is. I can't go take a picture of a star. They all look like dots in the, in the images. They'll look like big dots or little dots, just depending on how bright they are. There are some ways to get sizes as well. HR diagram, we'll spend a lot of time on the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram. And in terms of how we understand stars, because you'll be seeing that over the coming chapters. We'll go through it quite a bit here um, in this chapter. And I'll go over it actually before I even go to the next chapter. I'm going to go through and do a specific another lecture on just the HR diagram to kind of expand upon that. Because you're going to see it again in, we'll see it in chapter 10. You'll see it a little bit in chapter 11 and chapter 12 and chapter 13 and even into the later chapters. You'll see it a bunch of times coming up here. Distances. How do we determine the distances? That's one of the hardest things to do in astronomy is to get the distances. We look at the images like that picture we saw, the picture of the day we saw for today. I didn't point it out, but there was one little galaxy in there. And probably should have, probably should have pointed that out, but they're all at the same, but they all look like they're at the same distance. When you take a picture of the sky, everything looks like it's on a piece of paper. It's all, okay, it's all out there. It's all, you know, they're all however far away, they're all exactly the same. And you lose the effect that there's actually a big difference in distance, that some things are much closer and some things are much further away. So how do we determine the distances? And again, masses are another one that are difficult to get. There's just a single star out there all by itself. 
it's very hard to determine what the mass of it would be. So, just as the introduction, we'll look at the distances here. Parallax is looking at the motion, uh, or the parent motion, a star would seem to shift if we look at it here in January. We look at it again in July. Well, in January the Earth was here, so that star looked like it was someplace in the sky. Six months later, the star, the Earth was here. Boom, there's the star, it's in a different position in the sky. That star is going to, a nearby star is going to appear to shift its position. So if we do that, we can measure that angle, we can figure out how far away things are. Now parallax is something you're familiar with, you know, you use it all the time, even if you don't know it. I mean, you have two eyes that are separated by a certain distance. And if you hold your finger out, right, you open one eye, it's in one place. If I open the other eye, it's in another place without even moving. That's the same shift that you see when we're here, one astronomical unit to this side of the sun, and here, one astronomical unit to that size of the sun. So we can use that to determine distances for a handful of stars. Doesn't work for very many because at the distances to even the nearest stars, this angle is incredibly tiny. The nearest star has a parallax angle of less than one second of arc. Now if you remember angles, we did that. We had degrees, right? The full moon was half a degree. Divide the degree into 60 minutes. Divide each of those minutes into 60 seconds. So the moon would be 1,008, the full moon would be 1,800 arc seconds across. So you've got to measure angles that are less, for the closest star, that's less than one, one, one thousand eight hundredth the diameter of the full moon. It's a pretty, even with telescopes, it's a pretty small angle to measure. And it wasn't until the early 1800s that we were able to measure that, to finally be able to measure that angle. And now there's, I said a handful, maybe there's a hundred, couple hundred stars, the closest ones that we can measure a parallax to. That's just the ones very, very close to us. That's not, a lot of, that's not a lot of stars heading out into the universe. Now the equation here is that if you have the distance and the parallax, or if you know the, if you know the parallax, you can then determine the distance very directly. So if you measure that parallax in arc seconds, if it was, say, one arc second to make it an easy number, one divided by one is one, and your distance is one parsec. Parsec is defined to be the distance at which the parallax is one arc second. That's where it gets its name, parsec, so parallax, one arc second. That's how it gets its name. And it's about a little over three light years. So the closest star is about a little over four light years away. So even the closest star does not have a parallax of one arc second. So we're talking about for many of these stars, we're measuring things that are tenths of an arc second or a hundredth of an arc second. It's an incredibly small angle that we're trying to measure. And that's one of the reasons that distances are difficult. This is the only direct method we have to determine a distance to a star. Short of, you know, taking a spaceship and taking a big long tape measure out there, how far away is it? Well, okay. Take a long time, but you could probably do, you could do something like that. Or just take your spaceship there and try, you read the odometer, right? How far did you go? But this is the only way to get a direct measurement. Everything else I'm going to show you later on throughout the rest of this textbook is based on this as sort of the starting point. This is how you start getting distances to the nearest stars and then you jump. Okay, we've got distances to some stars. Now I have another method that will work further out, but I have to have some of them determined in the first place. So I will pick up there, come back here on Monday and pick up and get into chapter 10 
We won't finish chapter 10 before the exam, but just remember chapter 9 with the sun is where I'm going to cut off any questions on, on that. So take a little break here for five minutes or so and then we'll come back and start the lab right about 10.